brains look roughly similar, right? So they have two hemispheres and they're gray and wrinkly. If you look at them in enough detail, no two brains in the history of humankind are exactly alike. That's Dr. Sebastian Aquenberg. We'll hear more from him today as we dive into the mysteries of the brain. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce Mentech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, August 11th, just two days before we celebrate International Left-Handers Day, and we've got a special episode, a closer look at brain asymmetries. International Left-Handers Day is coming up on August 13th, and it's a time to think about the uniqueness and challenges faced by left-handed people. I think that may sound a little silly to most people, but most people are right-handed. This podcast is about the biopharma and medtech industries. So what does International Left-Handers Day have to do with that? Well, when it comes to brain research, handedness means a lot. You'd be surprised. So I was curious just how significant handedness is to clinical research. I wanted to get a deeper understanding of the brain hemisphere asymmetry and its significance in the context of neurodevelopmental and psychiatric disorders. So I reached out to Dr. Sebastian Ocklenberg, who literally wrote the book on this topic. And by the way, it's called The Clinical Neuroscience of Lateralization, and it was my vacation read this summer. And well, here's what we talked about. Thank you, Dr. Ocklenberg, for talking with me today. In 2020, there was a study by Liam Bailey. It revealed that left-handers are consistently excluded from brain research. The study showed that they're being screened out. And according to Liam Bailey, the author, um, he wrote that that it's because of this widespread belief that left-handed individuals might introduce errors into the data because their brains are different enough to make researchers want to exclude them to, redu- to reduce data il- irregularities. Even though about 10% of the population is left-handed, this particular study found that only about 3.2% of research participants are left-handed. So with such a significant portion of the population being left-handed, what are the implications of this exclusion and how should we address it? Yes, so you mentioned a very important study. I actually have uh, read this again before uh, I came on your podcast. So they, for the first time, showed something that people have been talked about for a long time. And I think about 10 years ago, there was also a review article in Nature Reviews Neuroscience about that it is not a good idea to exclude left-handers from um, this kind of research. So why are people doing this? they're doing is because left-handedness is something that doesn't really originate from the hands. So if you just look at the hands of a person, you can usually not tell whether they are left-handed or right-handed. Whether somebody's left or right-handed originates in the brain. It reflects a so-called dominance of um, the brain areas that are controlling motor behavior. So in left-handers, the right side of the brain, the right so-called motor cortex is dominant for fine motor behavior such as writing and similar things. And at right-handers, it's the left hemisphere. So it's always like that the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body and vice versa. 
And the uh, reason for this exclusion of left-handers is that left-handedness does not only uh, is not only linked to these motoric dominances, but researchers have been shown that they also are associated with specific asymmetries in other cognitive domains. So, for example, it has been shown that almost all right-handers show a left hemispheric dominance for language processing. In left-handers, it is also the case that the majority of left-handers process language in the left side of their brain, but the percentage of left-handers that do not do so, but do process in the right side of the brain is much, much higher than for right-handers. So if you're now doing a uh, study on language processing in the brain, something that might be, for example, very interesting in clinical research if you're looking at what happens after stroke, then having left-handers in there could indeed induce variance in the data because then suddenly there would be some people in there that show a right hemispheric language dominance. And this would then require the researcher to test more subjects in order to gain sufficient statistical power to have robust and replicable results. So uh, in the end, including left-handers would mean more work for the researcher. And just excluding them is an easy way, uh, but it's not the right way, right? So um, we definitely should look at the whole spectrum of diversity in how the human brain is organized if we want clinical or basic research that is actually reflecting how the human brain works in all its diversity. So it's important to, to um, not exclude people based on their handedness in any form of research. These are millions and millions of people that have been critically underrepresented in lots of research. And this might in the end mean that there might be a treatment that are not optimal for them. And that, that's one thing that's, I think, very important. And something that I think the World Left-Handers Day is uh, very much an optimal um, time point to raise awareness about. In your book, you surveyed the broad landscape of the existing research on this and found that there is a relationship between hemispheric asymmetry and psychiatric and neurodevelopmental disorders like dyslexia or PTSD or um, alcohol use disorder. Can you tell me more about what you found? There are a number of disorders, also neurodevelopmental conditions that do not have disorder status, in which um, there is a higher likelihood of people showing so-called atypical asymmetries. So it's important to stretch that just being left-handed or mixed-handed does not increase the risk for such disorders. Obviously, the large majority of, of left-handers and mixed-handers do not show such disorders. So that is not something there. there's a causal link. We think um, the, the relationship is more lies in the fact that there might be factors in early brain development that do affect both the uh, risk of obtaining certain disorders because 
brain structure may pose a risk factor and also do affect uh, how brainish symmetries develop. And there are large-scale genetic studies that show that this idea uh, might be backed up by empirical research. So, for example, there is a huge study by the so-called Enigma Consortium. So, this is a large international group of researchers that um, bounded together to do um, neurogenetic research on a scale that would be impossible in single labs. And they conducted a study on the genetics of, of handedness and they found that there were about 48 different genetic loci associated with left-handedness and mixed-handedness. And some of those already had been linked to um, the pathogenesis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorders in previous studies. So there's a certain genetic overlap here. And this is something that's quite common. So there are many genes that do not only uh, show relevance for one specific phenotype or one specific aspect in what the brain does or how the brain is structured, but then it can affect several different things at once. And I think this is something that, that happened here too. How do we navigate this complexity when studying the relationship between mental illness and brain asymmetry? In general, there are no clear-cut 100% causal relationship, right? So we always have risk, vulnerability, uh, stressor models. So if somebody is, is vulnerable because they have a specific aspect of brain organization, they may or may not get such a disorder, depending on like dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of different factors. And those include a lot of different rare and uh, common genetic variants. There's a complex genetics, complex non-genetic factors. And all of this um, is true for both the disorder and handedness, right? It tells you a surprising link in brain organization, but it still doesn't mean that we can conclude from a person being left-handed that they uh, get schizophrenia or from a person being schizo suffering from schizophrenia that they may be left-handed. But what does this mean for our understanding and, and for the treatment of these disorders? What does, does this mean for, for treatment? I think in general, um, we're not sure that it has any major impact on treatments such as pharmacological treatments. Um, but for example, uh, there have been reports that um, brain asymmetries per se can have um, important impact on things like treatments um, such as electrical brain stimulation. So for example, uh, in order to treat um, like treatment-resistant major depression, there have been clinical trials on how to use electrical brain stimulation um, devices that, such as uh, TMS. Like um, This is basically a, a coil that sends um, magnetic impulses in the brain, uh, and those are thought to activate or inhibit certain brain regions. And um, there have been treatments, uh, plans where, for example, people would then 
treat the left hemisphere or the right hemisphere. But here it would be very important to know the specific hemispheric symmetries. And if you look at an effective disorder uh, like uh, major depression, it would be very important to know which hemisphere is actually relevant for processing negative emotion, which hemisphere is more relevant for processing positive emotions. So any sort of treatments that are targeting one half of the brain uh, specifically, it would be very important to assess handedness and would be very important to specifically assess other forms of hemispheric symmetries. Uh, and there, this shows an example where like a standardized treatment may be not working for um, every single person in the population and where personalized medicine, personalized clinical treatment based on individual brain structure diversity would likely have a much uh, higher chance of success. Yeah. And, and so in terms of that, left-handed individuals, they have such distinct brain characteristics. Do you believe it's worth considering conducting more specialized studies just for this population to gain insight in how they might differ in terms of these neurodevelopmental disorders or how to diagnose them? Maybe that might be different and how to treat them. Do you think it'd be worth it to have more specialized studies? Yeah, I definitely think it would be worth it because um, even though this is 10% of the population worldwide, this of course means these are hundreds of millions of people. So, for example, in Germany, we have around uh, 80 million uh, people in the population. It means around 8 million left-handers. And I think this is certainly a, a population for which it would be worthwhile understanding on how to optimize treatments for them. So I think it, it's definitely a good idea if um, researchers look more into things like um, how we could understand the left-hander's brain. For example, this would be very important in all sorts of neurological disorders. So one common example where hemispheric asymmetries play a large role in clinical outcomes is stroke. Right? So if somebody has a stroke in um, certain areas of the left hemisphere or even like a large left hemispheric stroke, those people very com commonly... Um, show a, a syndrome called aphasia, so it means they have issues with language perception and production. If the same brain areas are affected on the other side of the brain, typically there are no language problems. There may be other problems like social problems or uh, problems in, in visual-spatial um, processing. So this is what we commonly find for right-handers. But for left-handers, this pattern might be a little bit different. So there might be more people that show language problems after a stroke in the right hemisphere. So if you now have like a, a treatment plan that is just like fixed on, okay, left hemisphere, we, we go for like treating language uh, problems. We try to help them recover language ability to their best extent, um, then this might not be optimal for, for left-handed stroke patients. And there's other, um, other neurological disorders where handedness may play a role. So, for example, for Parkinson's disease, 
it has been shown that um, neurodegeneration is stronger on the brain side opposite to the dominant hand. So there's a direct link here between handedness and um, the, the symptoms people would show. And also it has been shown that hemispheric asymmetries may be quite relevant for Alzheimer's disease in that if people show stronger asymmetries um, with um, progression of the disease, which may mean there is um, a symmetry in the neurodegeneration and the cognitive reserve. So depending on which hemisphere degenerates faster, there might also be uh, differences in, in treatment options. This again may vary with handedness. So um, in my lab, we think it's, it's a very good idea if uh, you're a neurologist to ask about patient's handedness and keep this in mind that there might be a couple more unusual outcomes if the patient is left-handed and that they still should be treated in an optimal way and there isn't like a one-size-fits-all approach in neurology. Yeah, interesting. Um, this is certainly an intriguing area of study. So why then... Is there a scarcity of researchers who focus on handedness in clinical research? And what challenges are involved with studying left-handed individuals? Well, of course, the, the main challenge is left-handed individuals are just much rarer than right-handed individuals, right? So if you can only test about 10% of the population recruiting sufficiently large uh, sample sizes of people is clearly a bit more challenging than if you can recruit from 90% of the population. We always manage to get enough left-handers in my lab for our studies. There's a lot of left-handed people who are actually quite interested in participating in that kind of research because yeah. sometimes think it may you know, help them understanding themselves a bit better or it may help them to get more representation in science, in society, in, in treatment. So we often find that uh, the participants are quite motivated to participate in that kind of research. So it's not a, a huge challenge. It's usually doable, but you have to invest more time than in if you test uh, right-handers. Yeah. In, in your book, you mentioned that the field of clinical neuroscience faces replication issues particularly in studies involving handedness or hemispheric asymmetry. So how are large-scale studies like those using genetics or neuroimaging or large biobanks and databases, how are those impacting our understanding of asymmetries from a clinical perspective? And also, what solutions would you propose to address this replication issue so that it ensures there are more robust studies and reliable findings in the field? Yeah, so I think in general, we're we making huge steps in the right direction by making bigger multinational studies. So I think there are, of course, a lot of potential sources of biases in such research. And if you think how many people did research a decade or two decades ago, typically um, there would be like small-scale studies with few participants that have been conducted in a single lab uh, with a sim in a single country and so on. And here, there's obviously a lot of factors that might, may affect. It's just like random factors, like this 
specific genetic variation in your small samples and so on. And um, you're never really sure back in that time to what extent your big uh, your your results would replicate. So what people do nowadays is that um, they look at big databases like the UK Biobank and similar databases that have a much higher amount of participants than like single lab studies back in the day. And also combine the data from such databases from single uh, lab studies across different countries. So for example, there, there was a study on the genetics of um, left-handedness that had more than a million participants. And this obviously makes sure that the data are much more robust against biases that might be found in a single cohort from a single country uh, at a single age and so on and so on. So this is, I think, the general understanding in this field of clinical neurogenetics that we need to combine our cohorts, that we need to work together and that we need to have larger cohorts that yeah, capture a, a lot more of the diversity of the human brain than you could do if you just test 30 people in the US. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in your opinion, what are some of the most promising avenues for future research in the field of brain hemisphere asymmetry and its implications for clinical neuroscience? I, th I think in, in general, what's very promising and I think where a, a lot more research would be helpful is definitely the field of neurological disorders because here you can quantify, for example, neurodegeneration in the left and the right hemisphere. You can put people in MRI scanner and, and put a, a, a number or like how much percent of the left and the right half of the brain are atrophied compared to controls and so on. So here it's much easier, I think, to get hard data on how much uh, effect the disorder has on um, the, the two hemispheres of the brain. And so, for example, we know there's treatment options if somebody loses speech ability in the left hemisphere, then some studies have shown that like singing or whistling are things that are processed to a larger extent by the right hemisphere. So people would try to have people sing instead of speak to tap into the abilities of the right hemisphere uh, for communication, um, things like that. So I think like treatment and recovery and rehabilitation of neurological disorders clearly is a field where I would see um, a huge potential for practical applications in personalized medicine. And, and creative ones as well. Your singing one calls to mind another one that I learned about where they're helping people with Parkinson's get a better cadence in their walk by having them listen to music. Perhaps. Yeah, so it's, it's like it's a rhythm processing. Most yeah. people is largely processed by, by the right half of the brain. So by, by looking in individual uh, brain scans and seeing which areas and which side of the brain are degenerated, it might be possible to tailor something like, like logopedics and other rehabilitation approaches to the needs of the specific patient. And this, I think, is a, is a huge step in terms of personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. And you don't even need like any genetic screening or, or other uh, rather complicated things. 
No, you don't. <laughs> Everybody knows already if they're a lefty or a righty. And so I guess that brings me to my last question. I'm dying to know if you're a lefty or a righty. I'm right-handed, actually. I'm, I'm oh. quite boring. <laughs> I, I just, I'm not in the first place interested in left or right-handedness in my research. I'm very interested in how brain organization happens, so how genetic and non-genetic factors shape our brains in, in being the, the very individual organ that it is in the end. So the human brain is practically, for all that we know, the most complex organ in the known universe. And while all brains look roughly similar, right? So they have two hemispheres and they're gray and wrinkly. Um, if you look at them in enough detail, no two brains in the history of humankind are exactly alike, right? And asymmetries are very important aspects of that. And I always think if, if you look at the human brain or if you look at any brain, it's the most striking visual aspect of it right it has two halves it doesn't mm -hmm. have three halves or four halves this is something that pretty much shapes it organization more than anything else and this is something that has always fascinated me so why do we not have like one unified brain why do we have these two halves why do all vertebrate organisms on the planet have these two halves and i in my research would really like to to solve this mystery and handedness is just something that um, you can very easily measure in people and also something of course that has uh, had people that fa has fascinated people a lot over like centuries right so this is something people care about it which of obviously also makes it easier to to uh, do research about it if the people that participate are interested in it yeah well thank you so much for talking with me that's it for the top line i'm Teresa carey you can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com look for podcasts and that's the bottom line from the top line 